Have you ever received an offer you thought was too good to be true, right? Buy one, get one three, get one free, um, pay like a penny. Like when I was growing up, there was this CD thing where you like send in a penny or something and they sent you like 20 CDs. It was like this weird thing. CDs don't even exist anymore. Um, that's what it was. Or they used to send out these mailers with keys on them. And if you went to the dealership and the car started with your key, you get like to win the car. Anybody else get these? Just me in my small town in East Texas. That's fine. Um, that's totally okay. But an offer that's too good to be true, um, right? And for the most part, most of those deals are never as good as they seem to be, right? They always wear out. They're, there's something behind them. Um, and so what we... But if there was an offer that seemed too good to be true, um, there's possible it could be a better offer out there. And that's actually what we're looking at this morning is the offer that God is giving us, the blessings that he is giving us this morning seem too good to be true, but the reality is they're even better than we understand or better than we think we are. So it's an offer for all of us. We talked about this last week, so we're kind of picking up from what we, we saw in the blessings last week, that this is an offer for anyone to receive. So if you are here, if you are listening, if you are in the building, these blessings are here for you. You can take them with believing in Christ and following him and being obedient to him. And so as we work through the text this morning, keep in mind these blessings, these things that we're going to talk about are available for all of us, that we can all have them. And so um, while you're turning there, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. It's page 1036 in the Pew Bible right in front of you. Um, you can also follow along in our app. I also want to let you know that last week we talked about getting scripture journals of Ephesians for anybody. We have more in the back. Um, so if you didn't get one last week and you want to get one this week, you can just grab one in the back. You can take it for free. If you really want to give us something for it, they're $5 a piece. You can just drop that in the giving box. Um, and so we're going to read verses 7 through 14 um, this week. And just remember, um, like we talked about last week, verses 3 through verses 14 are all one sentence in the Greek. And so this is a continuation of last week, and it's Paul just kind of excitedly telling us over and over the blessings that we are receiving in Christ. And so let's start in verse 7. It says, "...in him we have redemption through his blood." the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ, as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we have also received in an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So that we had, who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So this morning, we're just going to kind of work through this as we see it, as we go through. And just remember, we talked about last week that the key to Ephesians is this phrase, in Christ. And it's convenient that this morning, if you notice, there's three sections of verses usually in your Bible, and all three of them start with, in him. Right? That's in Christ. So we see that three times, so we're going to use that to help us. 
uh, as we go. And so first, we are going to see that we are free and forgiven in Christ. We see this in verses 7 and 8. And these two verses outline the two main things that we see uh, that we have in Christ, both redemption and forgiveness. And so those two words are the key to verses 7 and 8, and everything else in those verses is describing those two things. So let's walk through what those mean. Right? Usually when we think of redeeming something, um, we think about an exchange. Right? I give you this and you give me something back. Right? Whether it's a coupon or rewards points um, or whatever it is, that's kind of how we think about redemption or redeeming something in our context now, which is not a bad place to start. Um, but biblically, these words used for redemption are talking about releasing or delivering from slavery, um, which means if we are caught or trapped in some kind of slavery, we can, there is a redemption that needs to happen, meaning if we need to be redeemed, which we'll get to in a minute, um, we aren't in full control of our thoughts and actions. We are a slave to something. It also has another meaning, which I, I liked this week. It means to buy back, which for us means we implies that once we belonged to someone or to something, and then we belong to or we're under the control of something else. So we need to be bought back. And so I just kind of worked through this on my own with just a list of questions, and I think that'll be helpful as we kind of walk through this. And so I'm just going to share those questions, and we're going to kind of answer them as we go. Because the first question I had is, well, if I need redemption, why? Why do I need to be redeemed? Or do I even need to be redeemed? Right? I'm, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm a good person. Or I try to do good things. I obey the law. I'm nice to people. So I really need to be redeemed. I'm not wicked. I'm not dangerous. I'm not evil. And the short answer is, Yes, we need to be redeemed, and we see a clue to what that is from um, in those verses, right? It says forgiveness of trespasses, and so trespasses for us and biblically equals sin, right? So this means we need to be redeemed from sin. So we are caught, we are trapped, we are controlled by sin. And so if the terminology of redemption is slavery, then it kind of implies we are somewhat slaves to sin. So the next question would be, well, how did we become slaves to sin? How did that happen? What did we do? And so we get some insight from James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Um, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it for you. But it says this, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And so what James tells us is this slavery to sin didn't come from something outside of us, right? You didn't do that thing or make that mistake or go against God's plan or his will or his commands because you were having a bad day, right? Which sometimes, well, I only did that because I was having a bad day or I was really tired or the circumstances around me. It was just all of these things lined up and it made me do that. No, we chose to give in to those temptations, however big, however small they were, we chose to give in to them, right? So even if you're tempted to think, I don't need to be redeemed, or I don't really need to be redeemed or repent anymore, that's not true. We all need to be redeemed because we all sin, whether it's sins of pride, whether it's judging others, whether it's gossip, 
whether it's selfishness, whether it's our motivations, right? We talked about this week, we're studying, ironically, Galatians in our Wednesday night study. And we talked about this just this last week of even our motivations, right? The reason behind why we do something can be sinful, right? So you could be doing a good thing, but if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, it's sinful, right? So even our motivations can do that. And I think it helps us to remember, and we've talked about this before, that I think in all of our choices and every decision that we make throughout the day, there might be a couple you would say are an exception, but we are motivated by something in all of our choices, right? We're motivated to make a good impression, we're motivated to work hard, we're motivated to honor God or honor our parents or do something that our friends want us to do. And so when we are slaves to sin, those motivations are twisted, they are distorted, and they cause us to chase and desire things that aren't the best things for us, right? Because the reality is we are God's creations. We were created to serve him, right? Remember the second definition I gave you for redemption is to buy back, right? We belong to God. We were his creations created to love and to serve him and to follow him. But we turned away and we rebelled, all of us. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how well you think you've done, all of us have broken God's law. But sometimes I think it sneaks up on us, and I'm just kind of saying the same thing again because I think this is important for us to understand. Sometimes I think we don't believe we really need to be redeemed. We don't think we really need to repent because we convince ourselves that we don't really sin that much. Right? We have this list of big sins. We're like, well, I don't do any of those, so I must be good. Right? I'm okay. I don't need to worry about that. Right? It's other people that sin, not me. Right? Other people are sinners. No, this is telling us we all need to repent. We are all sinners. We all need that redemption. And so the next question would be, well, how can we or how do we become redeemed? And we see the answer in these verses. It says, through his blood. Right? This is the blood of Jesus that we are redeemed by. Um, the penalty for sin is death, like we saw in James. It leads to death. And so to overcome death, you have to have life. And so in this redemption, the redemption cost is essentially life for life, right? It's Jesus redeeming us, taking the penalty, um, paying the debt that we could not pay. And I, I want to just kind of continue to, to help us to see this. There's, there's not levels of sinners, Right? It's not like, oh, there's level one sinner, and hey, I might be level one because I don't really do really terrible things, but every once in a while I do something. And then there's like level 10. Those are people that like are, are in prison for multiple felonies and all those kind of things. There's not levels of sinners, at least not according to this. Right? It's not like I barely sin, so the price to redeem me is less than the price for somebody else. Right? I just need a smaller price to be redeemed than this other guy because I'm really not that bad. Right? So if I just do a few more good things, if I support a new charity, if I attend church more often, then I'll be right with God. I'll be redeemed. That's all it costs for me to be redeemed. I just want to tell you right now, that's a lie. <laughs> right? There's only two levels. You're either a sinner or you're not. That's it. You're one or the other. And in case there was any doubt, everybody who's in this room or watching online or watches this later you're in the first category. You're a sinner, right? There's, I'm not, you can argue that as much as you want. 
um, that's going to just lead you to actually be a sinner, so it's fine. You're, but anyway, there's only one person who was in the other category who was not a sinner, and that was Jesus. He was the only one who lived without sin, so therefore, he is the only one who could redeem us. It takes a perfect person who did not sin to redeem a sinner. And so he was the only one who could do it. And so Jesus redeemed us. He paid the price for us. He exchanged his life for our life so that we could be free from the control of sin. He did this even though he didn't sin. He had no price to pay. But instead of doing nothing, he paid the price for us so that we could be redeemed, so that we could overcome the power and the penalty of sin. And once we understand that, we understand that we need to be redeemed and we trust in Christ that he died in our place, taking our punishment so that we could have life. We trust and we give our lives over to him. Then we get the second part, right? We receive forgiveness of our trespasses. And I think sometimes it's hard for us to understand the forgiveness that God is talking about here. Um, because we think of it from a, from a human forgiveness perspective, right? And even in human forgiveness, if we do it as good as we can, we still remember what that person did to us who hurt us, right? Even if we say, I forgive you, and I'm not going to bring it up again, there's going to be times we still want to bring it up. There's going to be times where we remember and we feel the pain and the hurt of forgiveness, Right, like after you have surgery, right, there's a reminder because you have a scar from your surgery. Right, but what God, the kind of forgiveness he is talking about is it's covered. It's gone. It's not brought up again ever. Right, the guilt, the pain, the shame, all of that is covered in the blood of Jesus. Like it never happened. Right? That's a different kind of forgiveness than we understand. Right? Completely covered, completely gone, like the scar has been wiped away. But how does he do this? Why does he do this? Why does he redeem and he forgive us? It says he richly pours it out on us according to his grace. Right? Richly, and then he uses riches again, and then later he's going to use down payment. Right? There's some financial terms in this section. And to understand kind of this concept of how much grace there is, um, I'm going to use an, an old and a new example just to help us to understand kind of this concept of overflowing grace. Um, when I was a kid, there was a show called DuckTales, um, and they redid it not so long ago, um, which some of the kids may have seen the new one. But in DuckTales, there's a character named Scrooge McDuck, and in his house, he has a room full of money. So much that he like swims around in it and dives down in it and they have all kinds of fun in this big room of money. Like he has so much, he just has a room to swim in, right? This is the kind of grace that we're talking about, right? God has so much grace, so overflowing with grace that you can just swim in it. You can't help but experience it when you encounter him because it's overflowing out of him. So if you come in contact with God and the Savior through Jesus Christ, you can't help but experience his grace because it overflows. There's a surplus. He richly gives it to us. 
right? We are set free. We are back under his care with forgiveness. And all the things we did are forgiven. Our sin, our rebellion, they're all forgiven. And it's given to us freely. Not because God has to forgive us or because it's the right thing to do, but because that's who he is. He is the God who forgives. It's his character, it's his nature to forgive us. Right? And he does this, it says, with all wisdom and all understanding. He knows what he's doing. Right? We didn't fool God into redeeming and forgiving us. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what you've done. He knows exactly what you will do that you need redemption and forgiveness from. It's all part of his plan. So his wisdom and understanding also points to his purpose and his plan, which is what we see next, is that God's purpose and his plan are completed in Christ. And if you're looking and you're like, there's four points and we spent a long time on point one, it's okay, they're going to go much faster. I just felt like we really needed to understand redemption before we moved on. So it'll move faster as we go through. So we see God's purpose and plan are completed in Christ in verses 9 and 10. Right? It talks about he made known to us the mystery of his will, the mystery of his plan. And I think a lot of times when we think of God's will, we think of it on personal terms, right? It's God's will for my life because if I'm honest, that's what I really care about, right? I care about what God wants me to do. I care about his plan for my life and that's okay, And as your pastor, I also care about God's plan for your life. Um, But for most of you, you're probably more focused on yours than others, right? We want to know our plan. But God, when he's talking about the, the mystery of his will, this is God talking on a bigger scale, right? This is him talking about his will for history and for mankind, right? It's bigger than what we usually think about. And he uses this word mystery, and, and just like redemption, the, the word mystery can be used a couple of different ways, especially in the scriptures. It talks about a, a previously hidden truth, right? Unveiled by God's revelation, that he unveils it to us and we can see it. Something we didn't know before, something we didn't see before. Or, this is how somebody else put it, a formerly hidden or undiscernible Thing through human insight, which God is now revealing through Christ and the gospel. Which may lead you to ask a question that I asked. If it's undiscernible to me, does that mean God's hiding something from me? Right? If I can't know it or understand it until God reveals it to me, does that mean he's hiding things? Right? Is that how God works? And I don't think that's how he works. We do learn more of him as we go. But I think it's helpful to bring in um, a verse from 1 Corinthians uh, 1.18, which I think will help us sort of understand this concept a little bit. Um, Especially if you're not a believer yet, or you are a believer, you see things very differently. And this verse says this. It says, The gospel is foolishness for those who are perishing. Meaning, if you're not a believer in Christ... If you are still in your sins, what we are talking about this morning, what the Bible teaches about, what Christians are talking about and trying to share all over the world, doesn't make any sense to you, right? It doesn't make any sense, which is okay, 
right? That's where you are because you haven't understood, you haven't been revealed what it actually means. The light bulb hasn't come on and you haven't seen everything come together. But on the flip side, it is the power of God for those who are being saved. And so for those who do understand who God has revealed himself to, he has opened the door for salvation, which we talked about last week, that's for everybody to come through, right? Once you have stepped through that door and you believe in Christ, you understand the gospel is the power of God that saved you. God is working. He reveals that to you. And so there are, he does reveal more to us, but I don't think that means he's hiding. I think it's kind of like, right, adults and your kids, right? You don't tell your kids everything that's going on in your house all the time. There are levels of things that you tell them, and as they get older, you have different conversations with them, right? The conversations that we have with our 17-year-old are very different than the conversations we have with our 8-year-old, right? It's not the same thing. They're experiencing different things. They're going through different things. They understand different things. I think that's what God does to us as well. He reveals more and more to us as we learn and as we grow. And he even does this throughout Scripture, right? We know, we know a lot about God just from Genesis 1, right? That he's creator, that he's loving, that he created mankind to serve him. But by the time you get to Revelation, you have a deeper understanding of who God really is. And he's much, you see a fuller picture of him. And so that's the same thing we see. God reveals himself to us progressively through our lives and throughout Scripture. But how does he do this? Right? It says he does it according to his good pleasure. And again, we, see, we saw this before, and we'll see this, I think, again in Ephesians. It's God is glad to do it. Right? It brings him joy to see sinners and rebels be redeemed. And then we have this phrase where it says, he brings everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. And this word for bring together, right, essentially means to sum up. Um, It's used in Romans 13, and this is what it says. Um, It says, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And so in Romans, what he's saying is all of the other commandments are summed up, or all fall under the umbrella of love your neighbor as yourself. If you're doing that, then everything else is covered. Right? It's the, the culmination of the law. And I think that's what he's saying about Jesus and, and Christ in here where he says um, it comes together in him. Is All things come together in Christ. He is the culmination of history, both before, from the beginning, and all the way to the end. Right? From both sides, looking back and looking forward, everything makes sense because of Christ. He sums up all things. Someone I read this week summed it up this way. He says, The entire harmony of the universe shall no longer contain any conflicting elements, but all the parts shall find their center and their union in Christ. That's what it means to bring everything together. All of history all mankind, everything that's happening in the universe comes together. It makes sense. It finds its purpose in Christ. 
So because of that, we, we see next that we are hopeful heirs in Christ. Right In verses 11 and 12, it talks about us, our inheritance. Right, And so what does it mean to be heirs? What does it mean to have an inheritance from God? And instead of trying to explain it to you, I'm just going to read you a few verses that talk about heirs and kind of in the scripture and what they say. So the first is 1 Peter 1.4. It says, We come into an inheritance that is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so we have this inheritance in heaven for all eternity to be with God forever. And it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. Nothing can happen to it, nothing can damage it. It's untouchable by the things of this earth. Then Galatians 4, 6 and 7. And it says, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Right? And this is going to sound very familiar to what we're going to read in the third section um, where we talks about the Holy Spirit and how we're sealed. Right? Those things go together. Right? That we are sons and daughters of God. And then Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Meaning we are on equal footing as heirs, sons and daughters of God. We experience all the blessings, all the rights and privileges of being God's sons and daughters. Everybody, all of us, everybody here, as you believe in him, you get that inheritance. So he gives those things to us. That's, right, the too-good-to-be-true part. Wait, we get all of that? All of that comes to us just because we believe and we trust in him. Yes, he gives us all of that. And all of that is working together for his will. Right, it's his plan and his purpose. What he's doing is not an accident. He's doing it on purpose. Whatever God is doing in your life right now, he is doing it on purpose. Whether you're really enjoying your life right now or maybe not so much, right? He's still in that. He's still walking with you, right? And in verse 10, he's doing it for the right time. And he works everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, And the way I thought about this week is, and I, I couldn't come up with a name, but you know how you watch a movie and you're like watching it and you're like, it seems like this is kind of a whole bunch of different things all together and I don't really understand how it comes together. But then like in the last 10 minutes, they show you this one thing that you didn't see for the rest of the movie and all of a sudden everything else that you saw connects together and you see all the pieces and you're like, oh, everything I saw from the first minute to the 99th minute made sense because I watched the 100th minute. Right? That's how I think about God's purpose and his plan and everything coming together is he brings everything together. So everything that's happening in your life, everything that's happening in our church, everything that's happening in the world are these pieces. Right? And for us, we're like, I don't understand how this makes sense. I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand what God is trying to do. But there will be a day, and some of us, you may get that in your lifetime, 
Um, and we'll pray that all of us get that so that we can see what God is doing and we can understand and we can celebrate, but it may not be until we reach heaven. And then we'll look back and we'll see, oh, it all makes sense. That's what God was doing. I see it now. I can understand it now. And so that's how I think about him bringing everything together according to his will. There's this one piece, and that when we see it, we're going to say, oh, it all makes sense. He was with me the whole time. Even when I doubted, even when I wasn't sure, even when I didn't understand, even when it was hard, he was still with me. Right? He brings everything together. Right? What his plan and his will was, was it was always going to happen. Apparently, I was thinking a lot about movies this week as I was preparing because I, I, there was a line well, I wrote down it was always going to happen, and then I wrote that that means it was inevitable. And if you watch any of the Marvel movies, you know that there's a, a critical line in the end with this guy Thanos who's trying to save the universe, sort of, in a weird kind of way, by getting rid of half of everything. Um, and so, but they try a, a couple of times to thwart him or get rid of his plan, but his line back to them is always, I am inevitable. Right? It was always going to happen the way that he set it up to happen. And what I'm saying is the same is true for God's plan. It is inevitable. You cannot thwart it. I cannot thwart it. Your neighbors, coworkers, people of different political opinions, different governments, different nations, none of those things can thwart God's plan. It is inevitable. He brings everything together in Christ for the good of humanity and for our salvation and for our redemption and for our forgiveness. Right? What we will end up with, what we will see in our lives and what we'll see when we get to heaven is what God intended all along. And why do we do that? At the end of verse 12, so we might bring praise to his glory. Right? We see and we understand and we follow his will and we obey him and we trust in him and we let him redeem us and we ask him for forgiveness and repentance so that he can be glorified. So that we can worship in what he has given to us. And as if that wasn't enough already, right? This is the more too good to be true kind of thing. He keeps going in verses 13 and 14 and promises that we are sealed and secure in Christ. Right? We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And we were sealed when? Right? It says, when you heard the word of truth, which is essentially the gospel, and when you believed. So when you heard the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He took the punishment in your place as you trust and believe in him and give your life over to him and you believe it and trust in him. You are sealed by the Spirit. And there's a couple of ways to understand this sealing and I'm going to give you four different kind of angles to look at it. One is that it brings security. Right? You are secure in your salvation because you are sealed by the Spirit. That means you are safe. 
you are protected. Right? There's verses all throughout the Psalms that talk about God as our refuge, our place to go when we're hurting, when we're scared, when we're running away from other things. He is our refuge, a place of strength and a place of safety. So we are secure because we are sealed by the Spirit. The other thing this sealing by the Spirit does is it gives us a sense of authentication, right? In today's culture, it's much easier to talk about authentication than like 40 years ago because now you have to have a fingerprint or a face ID or two-factor authentication, right? You have to give them your phone number and your address and like some random fact that you don't even remember to be able to unlock your accounts, right? That's how you authentify that it, authenticate that it's really you. And so what he's saying is the Spirit identifies, he authenticates that you are truly a child of God. You are authenticated by the Spirit. It also marks you that you are genuine. You are the real deal. If you are sealed by the Spirit, you are authentic. Right? It's like a certificate of authenticity. Right? This is real. He is a true child of God. We guarantee it. It also talks about ownership, right, of who you belong to, that you are God's child, right? It's like a, like a brand, like a mark that says, whoever has this is a child of God. So he, we are sealed by the Spirit. And then in verse 14, he says, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance, Right, this down payment or this pledge or this deposit. And this, this verse for down payment is also used a couple of times in 1 Corinthians and it says a similar thing. Um, but I just want to read those to you so you can kind of fill this in. It says, He has also put his, this is 2 Corinthians 1 22, He has also put his seal on us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. And then 2 Corinthians 5 5. Now, the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. I think most of us are familiar with the concept of a down payment, right? It's what you do when you buy a car, you buy a house, you put down money. Um, so you can essentially say, well, I want this, and I'm going to show you how much I want this by giving you a chunk of the money that it costs for this thing that I can't really afford all of it right now. Right? So I promise I'll pay you in the future. Um, and so for us, down payments are really for the other party. Right, It's to protect them in case we flake out and we don't pay the rest of the money. They at least have something at the beginning. But that's not what this kind of down payment is. Right, This is a down payment of the Spirit. It's slightly different. What it means is if I give you this seal, if I am the down payment, it is a guarantee that it will be paid in full. There is no doubt, there is no chance of any flaking out on God's end. It is a guarantee that it will happen. Right? He is going to do it. And so when it says he's our down payment, it just means, oh, he'll, he'll pay this down, and if, if we do enough, it'll work out, then maybe we'll get into heaven. No, it's saying it is a promise. It is a guarantee. It is going to happen. We can be secure in Christ. We can be confident in our salvation because of the Spirit who seals us. 
But how long does that last, you might ask? Well, he tells us, until the redemption of the possession. Essentially, he's saying, until Christ returns and sets everything the way it's supposed to be, it's good. You are sealed, you are protected, you are guaranteed a child of God. And all of the things that he's listed from verse 3 till now are included in the offer. Right? Sealed, redeemed, forgiven, to be with Christ, to know his plan, to follow him, all of the things that come with this. Right? They're all guaranteed until the end. And so as we live and we wait for Christ to return, uh, the Spirit testifies that these things will happen. Right? We can trust in Him, we can believe in Him, we can have security, we can rest in Him because it is for sure. And again, we get the same repeat right at the end of verse 14, to the praise of His glory. We get all of these things for us, for the praise of His glory. Right? When he redeems us, he is glorified because he takes a broken sinner and he makes them whole. When we are forgiven, he is glorified because it shows us the riches and the overflow of his grace. We are sealed by the Spirit. He is glorified because it shows his character that he cannot be overcome. He is too powerful for anything else to change his plan and to change us from being in his kingdom to being sons and daughters of God. And so we live in this time until, right, the redemption of the possession, until Jesus returns or we are with him. We do this to the glory of his grace by worshiping him, by our words and deeds, and living those out, and causing others to see and to praise him too, right? It goes all the way back to what Jeremy was talking about at the beginning in Romans 12. It is our act of worship, how we live, how we follow him, how we talk to others about him, how we depend on him. All of those things point to God's glory. As we trust in him and we rest in him, and we get to experience all of these blessings that he gives to us, right? An offer that seems too good to be true, but is actually better than we understand. And someday we'll understand the greatness and the fullness of what he has actually given us. And so it's our job right now just to rest in him, to trust in him, to follow him, and to praise him for what he has done. Will you guys pray with me this morning? God, we come before you and we thank you for all of the blessings that you give us. So much more than we deserve. You give them to us freely. You give them out of the richness of your grace so that we could have redemption, so that we could have life, so that we could overcome the power and the penalty of our sin. God, and we pray that we would, we would just trust in you 
right? Whatever we're going through, whatever's happening in our lives, we know from this and from other scriptures that it's your plan, it's your purpose, you are working in all of those things, and all of those things work in our lives in Christ, in the gospel, to help us to see and to understand the, the greatness and the love and the, the mercy that comes through you sacrificing your son for us. So God, help us to understand that, to see, to take time this week just to be thankful and to think about all the blessings that you have given us. And as we, as we sing and as we reflect, right, the, the, your graces and, and your mercy are, are, are like a fountain, a never-ending fountain that continuously flows so we can praise you because every blessing is from you. Help us to love you and to trust and rest in you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.